Welcome to Eleven's Ears with me, Danielle Perry. Now, this is the podcast where we delve into the lives behind our guests, asking them the same 11 questions over a cup of tea, coffee, or maybe something stronger. Now, my guest today describes himself in his Twitter bio as a swashbuckler, dabbler scientist, rapscallion, proofreader, shop mocker, and libertine. He's also one of Britain's most distinctive and best-known comedians. Born in the American South since arriving in London more than 20 years ago, he's delighted audiences up and down the country with his bold mix of storytelling, frank opinion and thoughtful delivery, as well as a catalogue of hit shows. A familiar face on TV, appearances on Live at the Apollo, QI, Have I Got News For You, the list goes on. In the last few years, he's added presenter to his list of job titles with two hugely popular series, Songs of the South and Songs of the Border, in which he combines an epic road trip with documenting 150 years of American popular song. In 2022, he's embarking on another epic journey, this time in Ireland and the UK. He's stepping out on tour with a show with the intriguing title, Bomb Chauffleur, uh, using the French spelling, which suggests he's found himself yet another occupation. Reginald D. Hunter, welcome to Elevenses. How are you doing? Thank you, ma'am. Better than I deserve. And um, if I may be impertinent, and you're reading in my Twitter bio, you read proofreader. Actually, it's proofreader. P-O-O-F. I proofread that wrong, didn't I? (laughs) So you're quite right. (laughs) Apologies for that. Well, first off, can we talk about um, the show that you're taking out on the road next year? Do I have the correct pronunciation of that, Bomb Chauffleur? Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You're all over that one. Tell us all about it, because I know there's a run of dates for 2022. It is uh, my next tour show, and I'm treating it as if it's my last one ever. Not because I plan to retire, but just, you know, just in case the world completely goes to shit. And uh, am I allowed to curse? You are. This is a podcast. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Nothing but grown folks here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a bomb shuffler, by my definition, is a person that uh, handles um, volatile situations. And so I'll be juggling a number of volatile situations on stage, or at least volatile pieces of subject matter. So the bomb shuffler. <laughs> Can you kind of expand on any of the subjects so far? Because I love the way that you sometimes really challenge us in what you talk about. I love the fact that you tackle some things that some people would shy away from. Well, I, I tend to let the show sort of dictate what it's about. Um, and it seems at this point the show is about bullying and how the bullied have found the means to bully. Have you ever experienced bullying at all? Or Oh, sure I have. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nobody likes bullies. But it's amazing how people tend to overlook bullies when they're on your side. (laughs) It's one of those things that I really hope that the younger generations are so much more aware of that it's all right to sort of call someone out and stuff. I I think there's a shift. Do you, from where you're sat? Uh, I don't think the younger generation is having trouble with that one. Um, I think they're being really encouraged to, to call things out or... They have social media to do those things with. They have cancel culture. I wonder in years to come, will will restraint be an issue for them? (laughs) So, (laughs) I don't know. I'm not as smart as I will be by 12. Have you got a cup of tea, by the way, seeing as this is 11's? Do you have a coffee or tea? What's your your go-to in the morning? I tend to be a coffee man. Um, I tend to be an herbal tea man when I'm unwell and an English tea man when I'm around English fascist. <laughs> Sometimes English people can be quite fascistic about tea. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. For the first question for Elevenses today, Reg, I'm going to ask you what is your first or your clearest memory of childhood? What's the first thing that you can cast your mind back to? Hmm. 
I have to say in this moment, airplanes. Uh, I remember screaming loudly. My sister Jackie was flying off to university and I was very attached to her. And so they allowed me to go to the airport with her. And when I got to the airport, I completely forgot all about her and became entranced with the airplanes. <laughs> she caught her flight and she left. And they had to peel me away from the window because I wanted to stay and watch the airplanes. I remember not long after that being given a toy airplane and making up my mind then that I wanted to, when I became an adult, I wanted to live a life that I had to fly a lot. <laughs> Never dreaming that stand-up comedy would <laughs> be such a profession, but it has turned out to be so. <laughs> Born in Georgia, of course. I have visited Savannah, mm. so I have, I have friends that live in Savannah, so I have been there. Um, I think you were more inland than that, though, right? Oh, yeah. We're on the, I was born on the other side of the state, closer to Alabama side. But I have family in Savannah and spent a lot of time there. So in terms of like sensory memories of that place, I remember it being so sort of like the heat. I loved it, but just sitting out on my friend's porch of an evening, you know, do you have sort of <laughs> memories of that with your family? Because you're from a big family, right? I am. I'm the last of nine, and um, I am from what you could now call porch culture. <laughs> and uh, there was, uh, during the spring, there's a, a spring rain season, and there's spring thunder showers. Every afternoon between three and four, we would sit on the porch and enjoy the thunder showers. If there's one thing I do miss about the South is I do miss thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. mm. Lots of your sort of family members and stuff were going off to do things and sort of growing up. You're the youngest of nine. You know, how was that growing up in such a big unit? Did you have sort of loads of friends from school? Did you continue to be surrounded by lots of people? Well, I came from a large family, but I played very well by myself. My siblings were a lot older than I was. So when I came along, um, a lot of them were starting their university careers and, and their first marriages. <laughs> and so I was... Um, I was kind of like everybody's son. I had, I had multiple parents. My mama used to say, I sent my daughters off to school and they came back telling me that I didn't understand nothing about raising black boys. <laughs> I remember in the 70s, the word that I heard the most was exposure. The more you expose your kids to, that was the watchword of the 70s, exposure, exposure, exposure to this, to music, art. And then I remember around the early 80s, the watchword was sophistication. You know, you're supposed to be sophisticated. Sophisticated people do this and unsophisticated people do that. And I don't know what the watchword of the 90s was. Yeah, I was going to say, can you go through all of them? What's the watchword now? <laughs> um, if we now sort of fast forward a few decades, this is the second question. Who's your best friend today? Who's my best friend today? Who do you consider your best friend? Ooh, who's my best friend today? Whose feelings can I avoid hurting? Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> it's that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, ma'am, you have to understand that um, I'm a maverick, I'm a loner, a rebel. I really ought to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> I'd have to say my assistant, um, um, he, he, he has to double as my best friend, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, actually, because, I mean, I'm married to a musician who sometimes tours and he plays solo, so... He gets that, and I often sit in a radio studio alone. Mm. Uh, quite kind of solitary careers, I suppose, really. Mm -hmm. Spending so much time on your own, like you said, a maverick, you know, sort of like touring and the solo stand-up. How do you find that? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, um, 
I don't I don't really know if I have a good answer for that. I just I, I think I just accepted the reality of whatever situation I was in. So if I was somewhere and I had to be with a lot of people, then I had to be with a lot of people. Or if I was in a foreign country or a different city and I had to spend days and nights by myself after doing gigs, I just made the most of it. Mm-hmm. I think coming from a large family, you can grow to really appreciate aloneness. Some peace. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you grow up in a small house. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't recollect ever having to make any particular psychological adjustment. We're going to slightly change tack right now. And even just looking at your Twitter feeds, you retweet some beautiful photos. Mm. Um, what piece of art, visual art or music or maybe a book or a film, completely takes your breath away? Something like that, that that you saw and you just went, oh, my God. Well, recently there's a, there's a 1957 photo of a dwarf clown that I retweeted and I made it my pinned tweet. It really speaks to me. It, um, I can feel the earth that's right there in the photo under the dwarf's feet. And I can see the look of exhaustion if work has not been washed off of your face. I can share that. And it's a silly thing, but sometimes when I look at old pictures, like old movies, uh, black and white or black and white photos, you know, I wonder if the quality of the days were the same as the quality of the days now, was the radiance of the sunshine as it was then, as it is now. It is sort of um, that feeling of the more things change, the more they stay the same. And things don't really get all that different. Just modest bits of technology, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I get the same feeling when I watch Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, a movie that was made in the 70s about a time in the 19th century. (laughs) Sort of skipping around through history in moments like that. It makes you wonder, like, Sometimes I see pictures of old airports and airplanes, and you wonder the smell of airplanes. Because to me, the smell of airplanes is different than it was in the 70s and 80s. Airplanes smell different now. And people will say because uh, of not smoking, but there's there's something different to the smell of airplanes that has nothing to do with cigarettes. It's fascinating, isn't it, when you look at how documented life is. And when there was less documentation, it kind of, as you'd expect, it kind of creates more magic. It, it does, I don't know, sort of glimmer a little bit more than everything that's so over-documented now. So looking back, it's precious. Well, it's like 100 years from now. <laughs> they won't have any mystery about what we thought and what we did and <laughs> what we were going <laughs> By the way, I did look up that photograph Reginald mentions, and it's by Magnum photographer Bruce Davidson, taken as part of a series he made with circus performers. This one was in New Jersey. And the clown with the cigarettes is called Jimmy Armstrong. The look on his face, the exhaustion that Reg relates to is completely devastating. If we go back to your series that you did, An American Popular Song, which is obviously so close to your heart as well, is there one piece of music from that series that will always remind you of making that show? Well, it's more of the people that I met. It was really, um, it was really amazing meeting Tony Joe White the man who wrote uh, Rainy Night in Georgia. Because people think um, Brooke Benton wrote it. He just sang it. Yeah. And Clarence Carter. <laughs> I only knew Clarence Carter from the song Stroking. I had never heard of the song Patches until we started doing the filming. And it's like one of the producer ladies 
she said, I just filled with tears because she just, that song meant so much to her. And, <laughs> and it was weird because um, when I would tell my family what songs were being chronicled, my family was like, them British people interested in that? That old song? I said, yeah, that, that doesn't mean nothing to us, but it means everything to them. We're used to it. Um, you spent a lot of time, didn't you, in your childhood going to church from quite a religious family, so I believe. Yeah. So I'm sure that music within church played an important part in your childhood too. Um, I'm probably going to get in some hot water back home for this, but I never quite got into gospel music. I didn't hate it, but there was something about the Baptist church fire and brimstone evangelism that um, I didn't like the loss of control. A lot of people, they went to church to lose control. And I didn't really dig the speaking in tongues, the screaming. And I don't know, it's something that um, even at eight years old made me think that we should have a bit more comportment. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, when I look at the Blues Brothers, that um, the 1980 film when James Brown was the pastor of that church, I mean, we've gone to that church. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, just when I look at that, I thought, well, we, we clearly didn't have enough Jesus there. <laughs> um, what or who is your biggest inspiration, Reg? Question four. Well, I think I went through my life um, always observing men and trying to work out what kind of man I was going to be. And, you know, looking at the mistakes that other men made. You know, like when Bill Clinton got screwed up with Monica Lewinsky, I was like, note to self, don't do that. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, when I was taught the story of like David and Samson and Solomon, note to self, don't do that. Stay away from vanity. <laughs> but I guess if I had to say one main inspiration, I guess I would have to say my father and that he is the one man that I consistently critique myself against and you know if my sense of failure often would come from thinking daddy would have done better than that or daddy wouldn't have thought much of what you just did mm -hmm. and I guess it's it's probably more obvious to me since my family lost him about 10 months ago um, but don't feel bad he was he was 102 so we had him a long time and I, I did read that he's he called you boy right until the the end, right? Yeah, a 50-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I do really like about aging is, I mean, I've, um, I've got two kids now. I know that you recently met your daughter, didn't you, for the first time a few years back, mm -hmm. quite a few years back now. But the one thing I do like about that is I understand my parents' choices, I suppose, much more so, I think, having been through it yourself. Um, and you, you speak about your, your mum quite a lot in, in interviews, mm. and it seems that that kind of distance was good for you and your mom, if you, if you don't mind me asking the question. No, no, you feel free. Um, yeah, um, when I moved to England in 97, I think I hated her. Now, in 2021, I not only miss old girl, but a lot of the things that I used to remember that she did that I found hateful just cracked me up now. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had understood better or understood more when I was growing up, I thought she didn't like me. And what it was that she was just angry in life in general and impatient for my well-being. And that sort of came out um, aggressively, sometimes violently. But I could have taken the beatings much more better if I knew for certain she didn't hate me. When I, I know that now. <laughs> mm -hmm. And my sister once told me, she said, you remember all the times that Mama spanked you? 
but you never saw all the times that she cried by herself after she did it. It hurt her every time she did it. And I was like, well, she shouldn't have done it, so neither one of us would have cried. <laughs> I see an instant way where we could have avoided all of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could have been a walk around there. On to something now completely different, and I'm going to ask you about clothing and appearance. If there's one item of clothing, something you wear or you've worn forever that changes you when you put it on, or maybe there's one piece of clothing that you could not be without. Oh, you know what? It's more a case of all of my favorite pieces of clothing over the last 15 or 20 years I've lost through moving house or going from hotel to hotel or sometimes um, being lifted by a girlfriend on her way out. Um, you know, shirts and it just, you know, I, um, I don't know if I have one particular favorite piece at the moment that I love like that. I do have an old corduroy jacket that belonged to the old man. And yeah, when I slip it on sometimes, you know, it, um, it kind of feels like 1948 to me. <laughs> That's real nice. Oh, and I do have this, um, three quarter length leather jacket that um, I used to wear a lot in my 30s when, you know, I thought I was a rather bad dude. And <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a long leather jacket to make you feel like a bad dude. You know, I thought I was really bad, you know, and, just, and, I, and I thought I had to let you know that I was bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, though, isn't it, when you put on, like, I've got some, I've got an old handbag of my grandmother's, and even now, like, all these decades on, if I open it up, it's still got that smell. You can still... I don't know what it is about the fabrics, even, I don't know, it's a beautiful thing then. Mm. Do you have a recurring dream? I do have a recurring type of dream. I tend to have a recurring type of dream where I'll be back home in Georgia, I'll be in my parents' house, and they'll be alive, and I'm looking for my keys to my car, and I can't find them, because I have to drive across town to get to the Edinburgh Festival to do my show. <laughs> and whenever I do get across town to the Edinburgh Festival, um, I'm late and it's packed and I get on stage and I cannot remember a word of any of my jokes. Oh my God. It's always something like that. Something that, a conglomeration like that. Yeah, like a sort of performance anxiety, <laughs> awful. Because, I mean, stand-up came kind of by a moment of serendipity, I suppose, to you. You were here and you went to RADA and then you were working some other parts and then suddenly comedy kind of and stand-up seemed to just arrive to you almost, in a way. Yeah, but, well, actually, though, it was, it was, it was... The ripples were heading that way for some time, though. Um, perhaps two, three years earlier... I went to New York to audition for RADA and I was staying with family members in New York and uh, my cousin Belinda, she says, well, this is your first trip to New York. Um, what do you want to do? I said, you know, I'd love to go to a comedy club. So she took me to the comedy store in New York and it was like a Monday night and there were like 16 acts on and they were horrible. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can at least do this good. I look at this, and it don't look all that hard to me. And I went backstage just to meet the acts. I just wanted to look them in the face, almost as if to make sure 
that they were people just like me. Turns out they were, and I just kind of tucked away in my mind, I'm capable of doing this, but I'm off to do this other thing, this acting thing. Mm -hmm. Two, three years later, I'm in that pub in Birmingham, and someone nudges me and says, hey, they do comedy here. And I look at the sign and I say, yeah, maybe. And then I look at it again and I said, maybe. <laughs> and so, yeah. That was the beginning of all of that. Mm -hmm. Why did you say that the stance were horrible? Was it their, what they were talking about, their subject matter, the stance, their poise? Was it the whole thing? Tell me. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I remember one guy. I remember his opening few minutes. This is about the eighth act. I don't even remember his name, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> he comes out on stage and he says, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How y'all doing? You know what I hate? Faggots. Just two ashy-ass niggas laying up in bed, rubbing each other. Dicks everywhere. I likes me a woman. Don't you like a woman? Oh my God. And see, this was like, this is like, what, 95, 96? And nobody was laughing, but nobody was getting particularly upset. And I just remember thinking, oh, that's not funny. Yeah, highly offensive. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I know. I mean, but you have to remember that, what, that's, that's like, what, about like um, eight years after Eddie Murphy did his thing? It's, it's just the, the cultural climate was completely different then. But I give him credit. I give that guy credit. He was at least one of the few acts that wasn't boring and bad. He was just bad, but he wasn't boring. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's interesting. So, yeah, you can sit there and you can actually go, I can do this and I can do it so much better than these guys. Must have been quite an exciting moment, actually, because it seems like it's crystal clear in your memory. Well, you know, when you're, when you're a youngster and you're trying to make your appraisal of the world and yourself, those moments when you run across something and you think, I can do that. That's a pretty good moment. Because you grow up wondering how much difference is there between me and other people. You know, it's like, I don't know if I could be president of the United States. I don't know if I could uh, fly to the moon. I don't know if I could write a book. But then you meet somebody who wrote a book, you read the book, and the book went all that good. And you look at them, and you know, they're a person like you, and you think, well, hell, I can write a book. Yeah. Exactly. It is a big moment on the inside when you realize that you can do something. Oh, completely. It's beautifully profound. And I tease my English friends because my English friends, culturally, English people get really mad at themselves when they can't do something the first time. Or y'all get really mad at yourself when y'all don't already know something. I should have known that. Why didn't I know that? It's a, it's a bloody <laughs> shame. I should have known that. <laughs> so true. We're going to talk about fear now. And at the beginning, you, you mentioned something about, I'm going to put everything into this next run that you're doing next year, Bomb Shuffler, in case it's the last one, you were joking and stuff. But of course, I'm sure like everyone else, you've had time away from the stage and what you've been doing because of the pandemic. We're recording this November 2021, where things have opened up a little bit more. Did it scare you, the thought of not being able to go out and perform again? Well, I didn't have that fear. I did have fears occasionally that, um, the industry of stand-up comedy was going to be destroyed. I was worried about that. Yeah. There were moments that were unnerving, like between the second and third lockdown, I had like three gigs on a Saturday evening, and I walk into this pub, there's this man, he's drunk, and I smile at him. He's on his own. I have empathy with outsiders. Um, I know particularly what it's like to feel like an outsider, even in your own home. And then when I'm coming out after the gig, he gets in front of me and he says, I want to tell the comedian a joke. And my assistant says, man, we got to go. And I said, let him tell his joke. And then he grabs me by my hands. 
And that's when I, I shook my hands and I said, joke time over. Let's go. So this man starts following us out to the car. We have to start running. And when we get to the car and we take off, I look at my hands and I hear myself say, I can't believe I let that cracker touch me. Did I just say that? It's the most racist thing I've ever said. And my friend pulled out some antibacterial and he says, you're all right, man. He says, it's just extreme times. You're still a good person. <laughs> it kind of pushed everyone to their limits, right? I think all of us are in various stages of emotional and mental recovery from the lockdowns. Mm. The world's like a snow globe and it's been turned upside down and the flakes are still haven't settled. Yeah, it's going to be interesting in the next couple of years, right? Aside from that, which I don't mean to be sort of aside from that, because it's like such an international thing that's happened globally to everybody. What does scare you, Reginald? What does? Oh, um, I don't normally um, reveal things like that to people I just met. <laughs> Will you? <laughs> um, I still have a, a fear of failure. You know, it's no matter how well you've done or how well people keep telling you you've done, you are supremely aware of what your life lacks. And on certain days, you can run in your head what I call shit montages of all your biggest failures. And if you do that long enough, you'll think that the shit montage is the whole of your reality. Um, after the lockdown, I think I fear a long, drawn-out death. You know, like uh, cancer or something long and agonizing and debilitating. And, um, well, this is not so much of a fear, but it's more of um, I accept that it will happen one day. <laughs> um, but there's something I'm sure that I've said in the past on social media, on stage or somewhere that whenever I try to run for my local council, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's going to come back or... When I run for PTA president or something, there's something's coming, you know. <laughs> Just because, like, the man that I am right now, I'll be like, I don't give a fuck about none of that. I, don't, I, ain't worry, I ain't worry about nothing. Yeah, I stand by everything I had to say. But 10 years from now, you know, my needs will probably be different. And just, you know, and I probably want a quieter life. And I, maybe I want more acceptance from the mainstream man. But right now, I can still be like, well, motherfucker mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> you should get that long leather jacket back on. Be a bad dude again. Um, th there was a story that I've read about, obviously, you know, gun culture in the States, obviously a massive problem out there. But you have had a gun held to your head before when we talk about fear and things like that. Oh, yes. You were gambling, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does that feel to have a gun to your head? Because I can't even imagine. You know what? I will be completely honest with you. It is true what they say. When you have a gun pointing at your head and your extinction seems imminent, you do have a moment when your life totally flashes before your eyes, like from birth to that moment. Just And when the gun was being held on me, it was like my thought was, wow, what do I regret that I haven't done if I have to cash in my chips right now? And I thought, oh, I regret that I never saw England. If somehow I get up from under this, I'll look into that. <laughs> mm, and that's obviously when the next day I believe that you applied to RADA, right? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> In fact, I guess I owe that crackhead cart player as much gratitude for me being here as anyone else. Isn't that amazing, those moments that just shape the rest of your life? <laughs> um, now, you've obviously been in a few scrapes like that over the years looking back. Um, what advice would you give your younger self? This is question eight. 
Oh, I'm trying to think if I would even like that guy. <laughs> that guy was so sure of himself. And he was so sure about what he knew and what he believed. I think I would tell him that it's all right to be afraid. I think I would tell him that just because society, Western society, doesn't give men much easy language to admit fear, it doesn't mean that it's not all right to be. Mm -hmm. And what, what brings humility, do you think, through life? Would that be experience, parenthood, fatherhood? Uh, I, think, I think having um, friends who will tell you the truth about yourself, that gives you humility. That keeps you in check. Um, I remember when um, my daughter came into my life, the female friends in my life, <laughs> these women had the nerve to suggest to me, well, maybe it's karma, Reginald, that you now have a daughter to raise, considering all the things you said about women on stage over the years. And I was like, really, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> what you saw. <laughs> um, but... But my daughter, um, it's amazing. It's like, this is the one female, apart from my mother, my sisters, or any woman that I've ever dated, this is the one female that I can't get flip at the mouth with her the way I did with all the rest of them. And it's like, okay, I, I constantly have to say the fifth or sixth thing that comes to mind. Yeah. That, that, that has really put me back in touch with my humility. It's like, okay, I don't want to say the wrong thing when she ends up becoming a hooker or a drug addict or a reality TV personality. So let me mind what I say to her. And I find myself often, sometimes she'll say something and, you know, she'll be a bit flippant to mouth. And I find myself going, well, you could say with the first couple of things that you thought, well, those are the kind of things that you want to say when you're trying to win but you're trying to get this one to understand. So you need to think a bit longer. That's interesting. <laughs> Would you say, um, the next question is, what do you think is your worst quality? Like you just said, would that be sort of speaking out without kind of pulling back or? Oh. I had a moment, I had a moment um, maybe a week or so ago when I realized that, and I looked at all the people who I used to know, um, people I've fallen out with, people I felt like crossed the line or violated me in some way. I realized a couple of weeks ago that I have been guilty of the same things in, in other ways. It's, it's not them, it's us, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I used to be so rigid in my point of view about what was right, what was wrong. And on occasion, nut swinging self-righteous and I would like to undo some of that if I could. <laughs> I guess it's all part of the path though, right? Yeah, and then, I mean, but I'm trying to think about what, what are my other worst characteristics because I know a lot of times people say, you know, when they tell you their worst characteristics, they're really sounding self-congratulatory like, oh, I just love too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I just give too much. <laughs> I'm too generous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too trusting. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's too funny. What would you say your biggest life lesson was, Reginald? My sister Kathy told me, she said, there will never be a perfect time to do anything. 
Anytime you're considering making a big move, if you're waiting for the perfect time, the perfect time to leave your job, your marriage, whatever, if you're waiting for everything to be perfect for those things to happen, it will never come. Mm -hmm. Whenever you have to make the big move, there will always be something that will be left undone. Go. That's quite right. It's like when you're trying to break up with someone when you're younger, isn't it? And then it's their birthday, and then it's Christmas. (laughs) I can't do it then, I can't do it then. We are at the last question, question 11. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, And it's a bit more positive. When and where are or were you at your happiest? It would be one of two times. In my late teens, early 20s, I was a member of a clique of five guys and we were inseparable. We did everything together. If one of us had a doctor's appointment, the other four was in the waiting room reading magazines. We were that inseparable. (laughs) (laughs) And so I do miss the camaraderie of those times. Um, And I think the other time was between 2004 and 2007. I used to share a flat. I lived with a buddy of mine who was also my director. He directed my first two Edinburgh shows and we had sort of a professional marriage. Every day, we would be out of bed between 10.30 and 11 every day. And whoever woke up first put the kettle on and by 11.30, both of us were sitting across from each other, computers facing each other, and we'd be running routines and stuff all day. And it was just, it was, it sort of reminds me of something like The Paper Chase or that movie where um, Sir John Gielgud is trying to teach a young boy how to play Rachmaninoff. It was a three-year period where we completely put the art first. Mm-hmm. You know, he taught me that it was okay to talk out loud to yourself because sometimes an idea won't come all the way through in your mind. Sometimes you have to take it with you in the bathtub. You have to take it in the backyard with you. You have to take it on the bus with you. And I just remember all our days and nights being filled with the art. And yeah, everything else seemed to pale in comparison. Heady times. Exactly. That's the word, heady times. Lovely point to end this on. I'm very much looking forward to um, coming to see your show. It's been a a total joy to meet you. Likewise, ma'am. Reginald, thank you so much. And good luck with the show next year. I can't wait to see it. Ma'am, you are easy company. And um, come by and uh, see the show. And afterwards, we'll blow the frost off a couple. I'd like that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, ma'am. Well, what an absolute gentleman, Reginald D. Hunter. So if you enjoyed the show, uh, please do let everyone know. You can rate and subscribe, especially if you're on Apple. And please do join me, Danielle Perry, again for Elevenses, where on the next episode, we are joined by a superstar DJ and scissor sister, Anna Matronic. I had a character named Harsha, a performance artist from Prague. I made a factory out of a shoebox and two toilet rolls and then smoked a cigarette and like blew smoke out of the stacks of the factory. It was really stupid. Until next time, thanks for listening. (laughs) 